0: You're listening to a podcast from Northeast Christian Church. For more information about Northeast, go to ncclex.org. Thanks for listening. Well, as you saw by the bumper, we're kicking off a brand new series called Breaking the Code. And I'll explain a little bit of what all of that means. There are people who are called code talkers. In 1942, World War II was not going well for the Allied forces. France had been defeated, Britain was still staggering from the German Blitz, and the Japanese forces had crippled the United States Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor. In wartime, secure communications are vital, they're crucial. But for the U.S. armed forces, securing messages became a massive problem. Japanese code breakers, many of them ironically educated in the United States, were incredibly skilled at breaking U.S. encryption. Enemy forces often knew all about American battle plans well in advance of their happening. So the United States military recruited a group of uniquely talented soldiers known as simply code talkers. The code talkers were not combat soldiers in the conventional sense. Instead, they were brought into the military for something only they possessed, their native language. You see, these soldiers were Native Americans, most of them from the Navajo tribe. And the Navajo language became the central component of a new encrypted code that proved unbreakable for decades Each code talker was deployed in the Pacific Theater with a unit of Marines. There, they translated messages and transmitted messages, excuse me, and orders about tactics, troop movements, and all other kinds of military orders. And the Japanese would hear these messages, but they were never able to decode them. Numerous battles in particular the battle of iwo jima maybe the most famous in the pacific were won due to this strategic advantage here's a fact a code is useless if you don't understand it it's useless if you can't understand what it means so if you don't understand then you have to break the code Well, there are people who are good at breaking codes. In fact, during World War II, there was a code breaker by the name of Alan Turing. He was a British mathematician who was instrumental in determining the outcome of World War II. You see, it's one thing to have unbreakable codes that the enemy can't break. But it's a whole other thing to be able to break the enemy's codes. Alan Turing was arguably the best code breaker in the world during World War II. In 1939, Turing joined the British Government Code and Cipher School, where they teach code breaking. That was all at the start of World War II. The Polish government had shared information with the British and the French details that they had learned through breaking Nazi codes. The Polish had had some successes against the main code machine used by the German military to encrypt their radio communications. But a change happened by, in German procedures by the spring of 1940 that rendered all that the Polish codebreakers had learned useless. Alan Turing and a group of others went to work and designed a very different code-breaking machine in the spring of 1940, about the same time the Germans made an adjustment. For the rest of the war, this decoding machine supplied the Allied forces with huge quantities of military intelligence. By early 1942, the code were decoding about 39,000 intercepted messages a month, a figure that rose to more than 84,000 messages a month. That's two messages every minute, 24 hours a day. Alan Turing was responsible for breaking the Nazi encryption code during World War II. History records that it was primarily his work that gave the Allies the edge they needed in order to win the war in Europe. If you don't understand the code... You'll never understand the message that's being communicated by the code. So you have to break the code. Well, what does any of this have to do with what we're trying to accomplish? Well, throughout Jesus' ministry, he often talked about topics like discipleship or money or the kingdom of heaven or even end times events. And due to the complexity of some of these topics, Jesus often used parables to communicate the deep spiritual messages that he was trying to convey. For many, these parables were like encrypted codes that were so difficult to understand, they never got the message. In fact, the disciples interrupt Jesus one day while he was teaching in parables, and they ask this question. Matthew 13, verse 10. Why do you speak to the people in parables? All this, Jesus, why? Now, let me give you a little bit of background on our word, the word that we use, parable. Parable is actually a transliteration, not a translation of a different word. It's a transliteration. When you transliterate a word from another language, you actually are saying, we don't have a word like that in our language, and so we're going to create a word. We're going to transliterate it. So our English word parable is a transliteration of the Greek word, which means to place beside. That's what it means, to place beside. So a parable is a story that places one thing over here that's common and we place something that's not so common next to it. It puts something that's familiar and you place something that's unknown right next to it so that you can learn. I'll give you an example. Jesus said several times, the kingdom of heaven is like a city on a hill or a man who sows good seed or a man who builds his house on the rock. He's taking the kingdom of heaven and he's comparing it to things that are common So that you can learn what the kingdom of heaven is like. The familiar definition of a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And that's a simple, a very simplified definition. It doesn't say all there is about a parable. But it does say enough. What it does is it reminds us that there is this unity between the visible, natural world where things are known... And the invisible spiritual world where things aren't so known, but we want to know them. So, why did Jesus actually use this type of teaching in order to teach people the truth? Why did he, in some people's mind, teach in code? Well, first of all, you need to know Jesus didn't invent parables. Actually, there are uh, several parables in the Old Testament. And rabbis, Jewish rabbis, commonly used parables to teach. But when Jesus was asked why he taught with parables, this is what he said in Matthew 13, 11 and following. It says, he replied, Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have... Even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. Jesus seems to be teaching here that he has hidden the truth in parables, not to conceal it, but actually to reveal it. Give me a moment. The man who has faith will learn the truth and receive more, while the man who lacks faith, Jesus says, is going to lose even what he thinks he has. A parable would excite those who were concerned in knowing truth. It would stimulate them to want to learn more. But it would also blind the careless person. And it blinded them because of the condition of their heart. By using parables, Jesus was speaking in order to spark interest and awaken those whose spiritual senses had grown dull. By telling stories with hidden meanings, Jesus was arousing the interest of his listeners. You can almost see them squinting a little and leaning in to say, I'm not sure I know what that means. But I want to. In contrast to the crowds who rejected the message, or maybe they assumed this kind of neutrality, the disciples, on the other hand, had a basic understanding. And they will be given even more understanding, Jesus says, while the crowds only increase in their confused and darkened state of mind. The reality of a parable, listen, the reality of a parable is it conceals and reveals truth at the same time, depending on the heart condition of the listener. To crack the code is going to be found in your heart. Jesus doesn't speak to the crowds in order to make them blind or deaf to what is true. But because they've already shut their eyes and refused to hear, they're going to lack the capacity to understand the message that he gives to them about the kingdom of heaven. Parables merely confirm that, they're, that these people, these crowds, were not ready to hear the mysteries of the kingdom. For some, that would come later. The parables are a way of revealing these deeper mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. In order to honestly to people who honestly are seeking the meaning of truth. While those who have hardened hearts, these parables, stories, truths, encode, will appear as simply riddles with very, very little value at all. Jesus continues his explanation to why he uses parables in verses fourteen and fifteen. This is what he says. In them is fulfilled, he's talking about parables here, in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's for this people's heart has become callous. They are hardly they hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise They might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn. And I would heal them. Jesus cites a passage from Isaiah. It's the sixth chapter, verses 9 and 10. And it's a favorite text in the New Testament to explain the unbelief that Israel had. The reference continues the thought that Jesus gave in explaining why he used parables in verse 13. And it makes it clear that Israel's spiritual blindness is the result of a calloused heart. It's not some predetermined plan by God to keep the truth from them. Like the generation in Isaiah's day, Israel in Jesus' day had remained as a, as a whole mostly a hard-hearted group of people. And thus, If they didn't change, they would face the judgment of God. So Jesus concludes his answer on why he used parables to his disciples here at the end in verses 16 and 17. He says this, But blessed are your eyes, he's talking to the disciples here, because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it. And to hear what you hear, But did not hear it. In contrast to the people who aren't listening or they're not seeing the truth because of the calloused hearts that they have, the disciples were blessed to both see and hear. In fact, Jesus said, Many prophets and righteous people long to have the experience that you're having. The privileged status of the disciples is both a gift from God, God is opening up understanding to them. But it was the result of their initial positive response to Jesus' message. So, the time that we have left, that's all background. The time that we have left, I thought we would try to crack the code of one of the shorter parables in this chapter. It's actually a parable that Jesus would tell shortly after giving this explanation to his disciples. So let's break the code and learn what the message was that Jesus gave in that parable. It's the parable of the weeds. I know you're on edge now, right? Parable of the weeds. It has nothing to do with your lawn care. I'm sorry. But it's found in Matthew, the 13th chapter, starting with verse 24. And this is what we read in verse 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in the field. See the comparison? The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed. The focus of this parable is going to compare and contrast two individuals who sowed seed in a specific field. The kingdom of heaven is compared to the man who sowed good seed. He goes on in verse 25 and 26, he says, But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, the weeds also appeared. After the man had planted this field using good seed, it says he rested. Jesus said he rested. And the reference to the sleeping servants here is not a negative indictment on his servants. But it does underscore the malicious character of the enemy who hopes to escape being detected by coming in under the cover of darkness to sow the seeds of weeds in his enemy's field. The enemy planted weeds. Who does that? Really? You have a neighbor who's really good at lawn care, and you're kind of lame at it. So what do you do? At nighttime, you go over and you sow weed seeds. I don't even know where you would get that. Do you walk around with dandelions and just shake them around? Who does that? But Jesus says the enemy came, and that's what he did. He planted weeds, which probably refers to a specific weed. It was very troublesome weed that was found in that region, and it was called darnell. Which can only be distinguished from wheat when it's fully ripened. Darnell is known as wheat's evil twin. You can kind of see it, they look kind of similar. It's also called false wheat, which Darnell grew plentifully in the whole region around Israel. And one other characteristic about Darnell that you need to know is that it was poisonous, it wasn't like wheat. It looked like it, but it was poisonous. And given enough ingestion, a big enough dose of Darnell could actually kill a person. Over time, it became very obvious that once carefully, this carefully planted field was now contaminated with weeds. Probably the poisonous weed Darnell. Look what verse 27 says. The owner's servants, they realize this, they come to him and they said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? Which kind of makes sense. They do this assessment and they bring to attention the owner. They pose the question, didn't you plant good seed in this field? Which then leads to the natural progression of the question, Well then, where did these weeds come from? The servants, are, they're really surprised to discover these weeds in the field that they know had only good seed planted in it. But Jesus continues the parable. An enemy did this, he replied, that's the owner. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and then pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. The owner actually recognizes that he has an enemy who has done this. He's the one responsible for this situation of these weeds. The servants then respond by posing this immediate fix to the problem. We'll just go pull them off. We'll just pull them all, but the owner denies their request because of the difficulty of separating the weeds from the wheat at this point. The problem is that their root systems would have been so intertwined that you cannot pull up the weed without disrupting or damaging the wheat. So the owner proposes an alternative plan where the wheat and the weeds are allowed to coexist until harvest At that time, the weeds will then be gathered up and burned, while the wheat will be gathered for storage in the barn. Although both the crowds and the disciples hear the parable, its meaning isn't immediately obvious to anybody who hears it. Everybody's confused. Even the disciples can't break the code to this one. So later, Jesus explains the meaning to the parable. He gives us an inside look. He doesn't do this with all the parables, but with this one, he does. So we find that explanation in verse 36. Look what we read. It says, Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. Please, we don't get it. The disciples asked Jesus to give them an explanation, to break the code, if you will. What makes them different from the crowds, is they're persistent in seeking this truth, understanding of what Jesus was teaching. So Jesus explains to them this parable privately. Look at verse 37 and following. He says, He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. So he lays it all out there. First he says, the, the one who sowed good seed is the son of man. That was Jesus. He's going, this is the son of man. It's me. It's me. And then he identified the field as the world. All of this, this represents the whole world. And the products that are produced by good seed Those are those who belong to and participate in the kingdom of heaven. It's you guys. And the weeds are defined as those who belong to and support the evil one. And then Jesus defines, he calls out who this evil one is. He says, he's the devil. And he's responsible for contaminating the field with this contagious, poisonous weed. Which brings us when you're cracking the code, there are some key points that you recognize. Key point number one in this parable as we crack the code is the devil causes troubles in the life of the follower of Jesus. You need to recognize that. I mean, you, you don't just sign on to follow Jesus and everything is smooth sailing from here on out. In fact, you can make the case that there will be times when the water is even choppier, when the storms are even more intense. The devil causes trouble. That was the whole point. That was the whole point. The weeds grew up around the wheat. The influence of the poisonous weeds is always around you. The intentions of the the devil are to undermine the efforts of the Son of Man. The harvest is intended to symbolize the end of this age. This is the termination of the existing world that we live in. Finally, the angels are the harvesters, and they are responsible for burning the weeds and gathering the wheat into the barns. Jesus continues his explanation. In verses 40 and following, he says, As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus proceeds to highlight the fate of the weeds that were planted by the devil and contrast that with the ultimate reward that is found for those who are righteous those who are part of the good seed the burning of these weeds at the end of the age refers god jesus refers to as god's final judgment which brings us to Key point number two when you're cracking the code of this parable, and that is those who belong to the evil one will face a horrible judgment. That's not a popular part of theology in the church today. In fact, there are some churches who choose not to even teach this, but it doesn't make it any less true. The Son of Man will be accompanied, Jesus says, by his angels in the removal of everything that causes sin and all who do evil. Their fate will be destruction, accompanied by extreme anguish and regret. Well, Jesus finishes his explanation of the parable in verse 43. Look what he says. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Jesus closes with the encouragement that the righteous, the good seed, will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. Which gives us insight into key point number three as we crack this code. And that is the followers of Jesus will reign with him for all eternity. The fiery furnace for the wicked stands in dramatic contrast to the awesomeness of God's kingdom. For the good seed. At last, the wicked will be revealed for who and what they are. And the righteous will also be revealed as the true participants in God's kingdom. So the question is, which are you? I hear a lot people say, oh, he was a good man. He'll be in heaven someday. I go to a lot of funerals and I'll hear people talk about people who were not christian people at all and they'll say oh i know he's in a better place and i'm thinking i'm not so sure about that you can't do anything about that at that moment but you can do something about it today there's still time where are you are you the good seed Or are you the bad seed? Are you the wheat? Or are you the weeds? Let me close with this verse. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, both the wheat and the weeds, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that was Jesus, the Son of Man, came as a sacrifice. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in him, puts their faith and confidence and trust in him, will not perish but have everlasting life. They're going to reign with him in eternity in the kingdom of heaven. Even for the weeds, they can accept the love of God and his grace and find eternal salvation. Where are you? If you want to know the truth, the truth is there is a judgment. Jesus is the difference between eternity with God and judgment in the fiery flames. Where are you? Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for your grace and your mercy. I thank you for your love for us. And I thank you for the message of John 3.16 that tells us that through your grace and your love, we have hope if we accept Jesus, if we put our faith and our trust in him. Lord, I thank you for helping us to understand that truth in your word. And I just pray that you'll protect your followers today from the evil one, the influences that come to try to derail us. Lord, I also pray that you'll awaken those in the world who are far from you, that they would come to know you and see the truth that you have, that you love them and that you want to spend eternity with them. Lord, I thank you for that opportunity. We call it salvation, the opportunity to Make our eternal plans today because of the confidence we have in you. Lord, I pray that if anyone isn't part of your family today, that they'll take that step to put their faith and trust in Jesus so that for all eternity they can have the promise to reign with you. God, we thank you, and we pray this in Jesus' name.